Welcome to the Mertzbar Podcast, a podcast where we speak to musicians about their non-musical interests. Each episode features a guest discussing a work of art that they love, ranging from short stories to Stone Age sculpture. At least, that's where the conversation begins. As you'll hear, we often end up in surprising places. I'm your host, Bridget Coleridge, the violinist of the Mertz Trio, And today I'm speaking to the composer and educator Geoffrey Mumford. The Mertz Trio has been playing Geoffrey's piece, Undiluted Days, recently, and it was great to have a chance in this conversation to get to know Geoffrey outside of the score. My name is Geoffrey Mumford, and I'm a composer. I'm a professor at Lorain County Community College in Illyria, Ohio, where I teach composition, music appreciation, and humanities. We're discussing a landscape painting of the Dutch port town Dordrecht by the 17th century artist Albert Koip. As I remember, the title is View of Dordrecht, Seaport in Holland, mm-hmm. and the painter is Albert Koip, C-U-Y-P. If you can conjure the image of it in your head, do you mind just describing the painting? Well, since Holland was a major seaport and still remains so, there are many paintings of ships and in, in various stages of entering and leaving the port with whatever cargo they had. But particularly inspiring to me, as this is the case of many Dutch landscapes, given that Holland is a low country, the canvas is filled three forests full of clouds. And this is, I think, perhaps the first of many Dutch landscapes that I discovered while in the National Gallery in in Washington, D.C., which has an amazing 17th century Dutch landscape collection. I probably could have gotten my mail delivered there. I I was there so much. I lived there. I loved it so much. The painters I particularly were influenced by were uh, Jakob van Roystyl and and Meindert Hobohobema and Kuyp and others who treated the landscape as the primary subject matter as opposed to treating landscape as a background to figures. I teach a course in humanities where we talk about the idea of idealized landscape as opposed to landscape from your experience in terms of like the Barbizon school in the 19th century and which became the Impressionist school. We also talked about the role of landscape vis-a-vis figures and the idea that landscape was the primary subject matter was more revolutionary, I guess, at the time in the Baroque, painters like Claude Dorin took this idea of the idealized landscape to create a, an alternative reality, I think. What the Dutch landscape painters were doing, however, was, was not creating an idealized landscape. They were just painting what they saw. So they took drawings and then went back into their studios and, and made these, these paintings. But the subject matter, for me, the idea of, of nature, of light, like the way light filters through in and out of trees and clouds made a large impact on me. I guess I was trying to create my own idealized re- landscape in my head and an alternative reality. And I saw in that a kind of an escape. There was also a, a kind of a legend 
orientation among African Americans, the idea of flight, of escape, escaping oppression, escaping, creating an alternative reality. At that time, I was not thinking about that. I learned about that later. But it just was very um, visceral for me to look at these paintings and to see myself being in those clouds. That's so interesting how how you perceive the clouds because it struck me when I looked at the paintings of Koips that are at the National Gallery, the ones that you can see online. I mean, so much of his work, it's all about the clouds. They were what I imagine would have been very ordinary scenes of daily life for Koip, that these figures, you know, going about their business. And in a way, it struck me as this lovely irony that none of the figures seems very aware of this absolute drama that's happening above their heads. So perhaps it's also about, you know, being able to see them in the way that Koip is able to see or that you looking at the painting, you were able to see and make of that, you know, something. Exactly. I I know that you yourself began your creative life as a painter. And just in relation to Koip, when you first saw that painting, had you already begun working in that medium yourself? Oh, absolutely. I, I fully intended to go to college as, a, as an art major. I'm wondering if you have a sense of that mode of viewing, looking at a painting as a painter yourself versus if I were to look at a painting in the flesh, it would be very much as somebody who does not paint myself. And I'm wondering if you have any sense of that distinction from your own life. I realize that that, you know, maybe that has become blurred because it, it's been a formative part of your, your own creative life for so long. I guess I look at my work as very visually oriented in terms of the idea of evocation of a reality in sound and the structures within works analogous to the way clouds split off and recombine and playing ground, foreground and background, revealing and then obscuring, revealing and obscuring. I like to work out scenarios like that in my own work. Sometimes passages will morph, transform themselves into other passages. Oftentimes there will be a play between foreground and background in terms of groups of instruments or in a solo piece, register, articulation. So I like to work with these kinds of developmental scenarios in the work. Right. And that's interesting that you see that link. I mean, that seems very clear to me in a a lovely abstract sense of, of the connection between the clouds and how you perceive your own work or your own process. I'm just wondering if you could maybe talk a little bit about that switch that you made from being an art major to then going over to the composition department. I mean, that strikes me as a somebody who doesn't paint. It's such a an extraordinary, very dramatic sort of thing, but maybe it didn't feel that way to you. Well, I guess it's a good question. My, I took theory lessons in 10th grade in high school. Music was always part of my life growing up. My father had a record collection and it's just the fabric of existence in my house. Music played a large part, particularly jazz, big band jazz, Count Basie, and the lush string arrangements behind singers like Dinah Washington and Gloria Lynn. And, and so I love to write for strings. And my first composition teacher was a violist and thought posers should have a functioning knowledge of string instruments. So he said, if you learn viola, uh, you learn three instruments for the price of one. So I owe him a great deal for that. 
But I, I just became very aware. And, and again, those lush string arrangements, you, you could literally like walk into them. They were so full of color and sonority. So I'm sure that had a great deal to do with just the, just the basic music, early music education and the, the fact that music was always in my head. I always felt like there were certain pieces, like the Songs of the Yelverne by Joseph Cantaloupe, I'd heard in a previous lifetime. And then when I heard them in real life, I said, I know this piece, I know this, I know this. I always loved to draw as well. And when I went to high school, I had a very good art teacher. And as I said, I saw myself going to be a painter. And then somewhere in the first year of my work there, someone felt the they had their right somehow to sabotage one of my paintings. I, I was doing a style study of a 18th century painter, Francois Boucher. At the time, that was considered old hat, and I guess it was not done. And people were doing installations, and they were doing performance art. And I guess I was old-fashioned, and I wanted to develop technique. I kind of felt like doing that and working my way through that would help me gain a greater sense of what I was doing, what I would do later on artistically. Similarly, musically, I would start out, I would write pieces in the style of Schumann or in the style of older composers, working my way through Stravinsky and to Carter to develop a sense of that sound and what the possibilities were musically. But someone, for some reason, didn't like what I was doing and splattered white paint all over the painting. Oh, my goodness. And so I was really, really very upset. So I went to the music department for solace. <laughs> this composer took me under his wing, and it turned out to be probably the best thing I realized that music was the best way I could express, could actually combine both. And it's a temporal form, and so one deals with time as well as sound, as well as color. You can stand in front of a painting, and the painting doesn't move. You can stand there and just take all of it in. Music is fleeting, so you can become part of the piece of music and then listen to it again and hear, hear different things and listen to it again and hear different things. I hope I'm making some sense. For sure, the the idea of the similarities and differences between composition and then, and then painting, parts of those identities could be similar in some aspects, but of course there are many differences. And I, I was trying to think through the relationship between them and in at least a Western music tradition, we do draw quite often on, you know, artistic terms to try and describe what it is that we're hearing. I mean, referring to certain you know, French composers of a certain period as impressionists. And I'm wondering from your point of view, do you think that that's, is that helpful? Is that a useful way of using language and in, in relationship to that music or, or not? Well, it's, you know, I teach that as well. I mean, in, in, in terms of the impressionist composers, quote unquote, they did not call themselves that. It was given to them. As opposed to the painters, the the painting Impression Sunrise by Monet, they took it as a badge when the critics said, well, you're just putting spotches on canvas, just your impressions. You, this isn't real painting. They took that as a badge of honor and decided to make that their, their rallying cry. Debussy and Ravel have many things in common, but they were also very, very different as well. I think of Ravel much more as a classicist, and Debussy was someone who reinvented forms, invented new forms, and there was a certain openness. The harmonic content of both composers, there are certain similarities and crossover. They're both creating a new language. Do you find yourself ever drawing on a kind of, I suppose, a painterly language 
in order to evoke what it is that we hear in sound or what it is that we perceive? Well, a lot of my pieces have titles that suggest visual orientation. For instance, a piano piece of mine, A Landscape of Interior Resonances, I envision this green expanse that within it kind of undulates and resonates with various degrees of cavernousness. I don't know if that's a word. The word cavernous also appears in a number of our works in terms of the concept of depth and being able to physically enter the space. I have a cello concerto called A Fields Unfolding, Echoing Depths of Resonant Light. Again, the idea of sound resonating, resonating chamber. There's a string trio called In Soft Echoes, A World Awaits, in which particularly the idea is I was inspired by looking up at a cloud bank and imagined this cloud bank as being a world in and of itself of echoes bouncing off of these, these clouds. That idea of space, I mean, that's, to me, that seems to be one of the very obvious differences between potentially how one experiences music as as a listener and then how one might experience a painting as a viewer in terms of sound taking up spaces and infiltrating spaces and creating spaces in ways that a painting can't. But I'm wondering also about the way in which a painting like Koip's painting might operate in space because obviously there are the very clear parameters of you know a gallery experience and where you are able to position yourself in relation to the painting but if I think about the painting that you were referring to that Koip there's obviously a space that's being evoked and created in the work itself that's very outside of the viewer's immediate reality. Well when I was in college I had the uh opportunity to take two courses in northern and southern baroque painting one of the things that i always remember from these professors was the idea of being invited into the canvas how painters would create the composition such that the viewer was invited into it whether it be a path that, w- that was leading somewhere or in the case of claude norin it was called framing trees which directed the eye to a particular point in the painting Nadia Boulanger, the famous pedagogue, who's one of my teachers, always talked about the idea of the grand line. No matter how thorny the exterior of the piece of music is harmonically, I try in my own work to always maintain the sense of this grand line that ebbs and flows and has sinew and um, elasticity. Yeah. So I guess you invite the listener in by virtue of how you set up the beginning of, of, of a piece of music the piece could begin very softly and then allow you to move within it. And 
affect you in a way like you were playing the piece begins just out of the box boom that has a different effect on, on the listener and one finds their way into it as they as they can just as you're talking it strikes me that you're very aware of where the listener is in relationship to the music that that you're writing and i'm wondering a little bit about the role that that plays in the artistic process of creation is that a very different way of imagining relationship with an audience as opposed to you know in your earlier life as a painter imagining the relationship as you're creating the work with the viewer that's a good question when i'm composing the piece I'm in a zone. What I hope is that I take the listener on a journey. A journey that has a certain sense of inevitability, that they could get to the destination. Once they get there, they could have gotten there no other way. But during the process, they don't know that. They're just taking on this journey, and they're allowing themselves to be transported in, in some way. It's how I see Brahms' music. It's very gracious music, very generous music, very romantic but he never wastes any notes. At the end of the piece, the piece couldn't have been written any other way. But it's always so satisfying at the end that you realize you've been in this journey and it was perfect as it had to be. And then as you are painting, is that then a different understanding of of the relationship or how the how the viewer might be experiencing the space created in the painting or time well i haven't painted for a long time that's true <laughs> i guess when i was i guess i was trying to create spaces alternative spaces where people could be alternative spaces where i could be in high school if you remember being back in high school one 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 is trying to escape but i was trying to figure out who who one is and that was a way for me to find out or discover parts of myself and escape into the work. I was reminded a little bit about the story of Turner and his paintings at the Royal Academy and he would have these regular exhibitions of these great landscapes again with lots of clouds and ships and the whole works and the newest painting would be hung and people would be sort of disappointed that it wasn't it wasn't quite as good as last year's and then 24 hours before the exhibition opened Turner arrives at the academy with his paint box and sets himself up and and everyone knew to expect this so there would be this crowd and then he would just bring out the red paint put a tiny little red boy bobbing in the sea and of course it would mean everything was transformed and that painting was the the greatest thing he'd ever done and I, I've thought of it as a very um like a, a musical in the sense of being performative in that way his clear understanding of his audience and the, the physicality of that that it's like performance art that you walk in and you need the people there and the proximity of the bodies to the actual act of creation I'm just wondering how does that work for you that idea of something something being finished when is that point or do you understand it as finished because again you were talking about the titles of your work so many of them are about processes that are in motion you know they're, they're verbs rather than something with a <laughs> finished point well it's different with each piece I'm not trying to be elusive but you know when you're finished when you know you're finished but then you look back years later with some pieces and you re you think 
hmm, maybe I could have done something different with this. And there are pieces that I have transformed. There are a couple of solo pieces that I thought later on said to me, this could be something else. And I used that as material to make a whole new piece. I have a solo violin piece that I made a concerto out of. I have a solo piano piece that I made a concerto out of. It just suggested itself that way years later. That can be a very slippery slope sometimes too as well. I mean, you can constantly look back and rethink and rethink old pieces as opposed to starting a new piece and, and, and developing new ideas. But sometimes it speaks to you so much that you think, let me see what else I could do with this piece. Mm. And is the audience part of that process? You know, from my point of view as a performer, I think that you, you have a different conception perhaps to to a composer in that you you feel yourself as part of the living of the piece, if you like, that it's brought into the immediate present in a way that's very physical, you know, through your own body, but then through the proximity of other people's bodies and like crucially their ears and their listening. And I'm wondering if that plays a part in the way that, that you think about your music or whether it's something that is more personal. It's, it's you and the imaginative space that, that is there for you. I guess during the process of composing, I don't think about the audience, except in terms of the fact that, as I said, I, I'm trying to create an alternative reality. When it's done, I hope they come to it with as few preconceptions as possible and are willing to be taken on a journey. I talk to students about where the audience and the composer should meet halfway. Composers should write something as, as clear and direct and as passionate, communicative as possible, and the audience should come to the piece with as few expectations as possible so they can have open ears. <laughs> For sure. And I suppose as a final question, I'm wondering if at this point of your career, with that benefit of hindsight, whether you think that you would be a very different composer if you hadn't begun as a painter. I will leave that to the musicologists. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what kind of composer I'd be if I hadn't heard the early music that I'd heard growing up as a child. I don't know what kind of composer I'd be if, if I hadn't had the experience of, of flying. You know, early on, growing up in D.C., there was a program called Flight Seeing, where you would go on a plane and circle around the city and that was the first time I'd ever seen clouds in the sky. We were flying above these cloud banks. I'm sure that had a huge effect on me as well. So if I hadn't seen that, I don't know. Again, my experience is all the richer for it. I'm, I hope to share that with the audience. And I'm always very happy when people come up to me and, and, and say that they heard X, Y, or Z, a piece of music, which may have nothing whatsoever to do with what I intended. But they took the time, invested enough of themselves into getting something out of it, a real experience. And that's all one can hope for. And do you have that sense then of when a piece, you know, goes out into the world, do you, do you still think of it as, you know, very much your own and as somehow a conduit or, or an ambassador of all those ideas and the, the, the imagination that went into that? Or do you understand it as existing autonomous it has a certain aut autonomous <laughs> identity 
I like that I like that phrase, ambassador for the ideas. I may steal I may steal that. <laughs> um what I really want, ideally, is for whoever takes the piece on to make the piece their own and to make of it what they will of it. So it's an experience for the performer as well, in terms of how they express what I've written. And that's it for episode three of the Mertzbau podcast. Many thanks to Jeffrey Mumford and to all of you for tuning in. As always, you can find links to all the works mentioned in this episode in the show notes, and you can also follow us for more at Mertzbau Pod. And join us next week. We'll be talking about psychology, teaching philosophies, and chamber music. I'm your host, Bridget Coleridge, for the Mertz Trio. Thank you.